good. Let's just praise the Lord for a moment before we get into the Word. Father, we thank you today for your great goodness in our life. Lord, we worship you and honor you because of who you are, all that you have done, and all that you continue to do. Lord, you have been so faithful. And today, as a body of believers, Lord, we do as your Word says. We feed on your faithfulness today. We we receive our satisfaction in knowing how faithful you have been, how faithful you are, and how faithful you continue to be to us in our lives. Lord, I'm so grateful for an opportunity to gather together and go before your word. Lord, as we open your word today, I'm asking you for eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that understand. I say our eyes are blessed because we see Jesus. Our ears are blessed because we hear his voice. And our hearts are blessed because we're beginning to understand who we are in you, Lord Jesus, and who you are in us. And we dedicate this time today to knowing more of that and experiencing the love of God. Father, I'm asking today that the love of God would, would no longer just be something we talk about, that it, would be, that it would become the atmosphere of this room, that it would become the very air that we breathe. We thank you, Lord, for a manifestation and a demonstration of your love in our lives. In Jesus' name, if you agree with that, say amen. amen. Praise the Lord. You bring a Bible with you this morning. I want to go back to where this all began for us just a couple of days ago to 1 Peter chapter 5. Quick question for you. Who cares? Jesus, Jesus does. Jesus cares. Can I have that water, please? Jesus cares. Of course, if you've been with us at all over the last couple of days, you know we've been asking ourselves this question. It's a question we throw around a lot, but for every believer, it's a valid question that needs to be answered. And you've got to know how to answer this question when problems arise, when situations come up in your life, and the pressure and the worry and the care begins to set in. You need to hear yourself say out loud, who cares about me? Who cares about my life? And to be quite honest with you, you need somebody in your life. You need a faith buddy. <laughs> you need somebody you can call and say, um, listen, I'm just dealing with some stuff. I'm going through some stuff and I've got just worry and care trying to eat away at me. And according to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse, verse uh, 5 and 6, look at this last part of verse 5. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. How do you do that? By casting all your cares upon him for or because he cares for you. And you need somebody in your life who will very boldly look back at you and in response to the care, the worry, and the weight will say to you, hey, who cares? They will ask you this question, who cares? And you're sitting there crying, going, oh, my life, my finances, my body, my marriage, my family, my job. And somebody who will look back at you and say, hey, I love you, but who cares? Yeah, you can tell how well this goes over with people. I'm not trying to tell you that you don't have feelings or you don't have affection for somebody. But I'm telling you, you can love someone without carrying the care, without carrying the weight. And this is where the love of God is so different from natural love and human love. And we think that caring and worrying is, you know, just good parenting or just being a good husband or just being a good wife. You want to be a really good parent? Cast the care of your children 
unto the Lord Jesus. Anybody with me this morning? <laughs> Say amen if you believe this. And I'm going to tell you, I have had to do this, obviously more now. Sarah and I have a two-year-old, and uh, the older he gets, the more active he becomes. Does anybody have or have ever had a two-year-old in your home? Even if it's just for a few minutes, <laughs> you know that it is all attention on this child. And I will be honest with you, there have been more thoughts that have come my way in the last two years about the safety and the protection of that child. Uh, just this past summer, Sarah and I, uh, the Lord blessed us and we were able to take justice on a Disney cruise. And uh, man, what a great time we had, this giant, magnificent boat. I remember, I forget one of the ports we had stopped in, but we got off the boat and we were standing there on the pier, just a few feet really from the boat, maybe from me to that wall there. And we're standing there trying to get our stuff together and getting our sunscreen and our bag all packed up. And Justice is just standing there. And in just a moment, because that's all it takes, we turn around and he's about halfway between us and that boat, which is the edge of that pier. You know, they park there, and it's got to be pretty deep water for them to park in. And I just, I just remember, he wasn't really, he wasn't about to fall off or anything like that. But, you know, in a moment, you just, justice, and you run and you grab him. Well, I cannot tell you how many times that has played over in my mind. And just, uh, you, you start to think, if you entertain that for a moment, you start to think, man, what could have happened? What could have happened? What could have happened? But we're going to see in a moment what Jesus said to do with this. He said, take no thought. Matthew chapter 6, take no thought. What was he saying there? Do not worry. Take no anxious thought. And you know, every time I have that thought, every time a scenario like that plays in my mind, and I do mean every time, I require of myself to say out loud, that's not my thought. And even if it's in bed at night laying there, I will say it just loud enough where I can hear it. That's not my thought. I plead the blood of Jesus over my mind, and I think good thoughts. I think peaceful thoughts. And the peace of God stands guard over my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. Do you know what it means to have the peace of God standing guard? Have you read that verse before? Turn to Philippians chapter 4. You need to see this. Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, or excuse me, verse 6, be anxious, he says, for nothing. You know, if you were to look this up and compare it to what Jesus said in Matthew 6, it's the exact same words. Take no anxious thought. Be anxious for how much? Come on, say it out loud. How much? Nothing. nothing. Now, is this my opinion or are we reading Bible? We have any Bible believers in here this morning at all. Okay. So if the Bible says it, we believe it. And if the Bible says it, then we know there's a, enough grace on these words to enable us to walk it out. And if he said, be anxious for nothing, then resident within me right now is the ability to be anxious for nothing. For nothing. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God. This is what happens when you choose to praise and worship instead of worry. 
the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind through Christ Jesus. Listen to this. Worry has to be displaced. Does that make sense? Worry must be displaced. Fear must be displaced. You know what I mean by displaced? Something has to come in and take its place. And what people without Jesus and people without the gift of the Holy Spirit, and let's just be honest, I don't know what they do. I don't know how anybody lives without Jesus. Anybody in agreement with me on that? I have no idea what anybody does without him. Because when those worries and cares try to set in, the very best that this world has to offer is to try to get you to somehow empty your mind. Is to try to get you to somehow just cleanse yourself of all thoughts. We're not supposed to be cleansed of all thoughts. We're not supposed to be empty. We're supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Man, this is good preaching. Is anybody with me in this <laughs> preaching this morning? I'm enjoying it. I'm going to get this CD. I'm going to buy it myself. <laughs> You're not supposed to be empty. You're not supposed to be just vacant. That should not be your goal, just to meditate and transcend all natural things and just be empty and one with the universe and one with your surroundings. And Please, that's not our goal. That is not our aim. What is our goal? All fear and all worry, we don't want to just get rid of it. We want to replace it with something else. And that's why the scripture tells us in 1 John that perfect love casts out fear. Love comes in and displaces fear. If you had a little bit of something in a glass, I heard this example used one time and it made sense to me. You take, a little, say, a little bit of milk and you, you had some milk in that glass and you poured it all out, except there was just, just a little bit left in there, right? If you were to set that glass in a sink and turn the water on and just let that water begin to fill that glass, soon, soon it's going to fill up to the place where there's not as much milk left in there. And then you let it keep running and there's even less milk and more water now. And if you let that run long enough, that, that glass will very soon have no milk left in it whatsoever. Why? Because that water displaced what was originally in there. And that's what the love of God will do in you. You just sit under a faucet where the love of God is being poured out and it will displace fear. Why? Because, the scripture says, fear has torment. And love does not want you tormented. Isn't that what worry is? Tormenting thoughts? Those images that, that you've had to deal with regarding your children or your life, same kind of thing I told you about just a moment ago, the idea behind that is to try to get you to think on it enough that you become tormented by it. And love himself loves you so much that he doesn't want you tormented by that. He doesn't want me tormented by that. He wants to come in and fill you up to the place where all of that is displaced forever. Go to Matthew chapter 6. We've been talking about what Jesus said here. Matthew 6, and if you want to, you can also find Luke chapter 12. Matthew 6 and Luke 12, 
Let's begin in Matthew 6, verse 25. Who is speaking? Jesus is speaking. He says, therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life. Now, you might have to remember back to Friday night when we began talking about these things, but when Jesus said, do not, we found out there's another way to translate that, that maybe it could have and should have been translated. Does anybody remember? Stop it. Thank you. Pastors were here. I appreciate that. Thanks for coming to your own conference. Thank you. <laughs> Jesus literally said here, stop worrying about your life. Stop worrying about what you're going to eat, what you will drink, nor about what your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Every time Jesus asks a question here, you need to answer it. When Jesus asks you a question, go ahead and answer it. He's expecting a response. We, we mentioned this a, a couple of nights ago as well. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus asked the religious people, when they were standing around trying to see if he was going to heal somebody on the Sabbath day. You remember this? He asked them a question. He said, is it lawful to heal, to save or destroy life on the Sabbath? And it says they kept silent. And because they kept silent, the Bible says Jesus was angry at them and angry at the hardness of their heart. Jesus asked them a question. Who asked him a question? Jesus did. I want you to get the, get the picture and the image here. Who asked this question? Jesus, Savior, Lord, Son of God. And if he asks you a question, go ahead and answer him. Amen? Give him an answer. But they just looked at him and kept silent. There is no greater dishonor than to look at somebody who has just spoken to you and treat them as though their words were not even worthy of falling upon your ears. Any parents of teenagers? Sarah and I worked with teenagers for a long time as youth pastors. When you ask your teenager a question and they just look back at you with that stone cold glazed over look, I call it TV face, video game face. Some of you are musicians, it's also known as guitar face. Maybe, maybe somebody in here is married to a guitar player and you walk in and you try to talk to that person while they're playing guitar, just don't even try. They're not listening to you. They may be looking at you, but they, they don't even know you're in the room. And that's the same thing with teenagers watching TV or let, let's, let's face it, some of us men, when we watch TV and our wives come in and talk to us and say something and you do this thing where you turn your head towards them, but you leave your eyes on the TV... <laughs> And you think that she thinks that you're listening? You didn't fool her. And it's not enough just to let somebody's words pass through your ears when they ask you a question. It's just kindness and human decency and respect. Respond. Jesus was angry at the hardness of their heart because they didn't respond. And he's asking you a question here. He says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? What's the answer to that question? Yes. Yes. Life is more than food. And we know that. But some people think they know that, but they act like they don't know that. Life is more than food. <laughs> life is more than what you eat. 
And we just make such a big deal. What are we going to eat? Where are we going to eat? And it's on our minds all day. Some of you are thinking right now about what you're going to eat after this service. Life is more than food. Don't feel guilty. But people go to church and on their way to church at 930 in the morning, they're discussing what are we going to eat after church today? It'll, you know what? Just wait. Just talk about it after. You'll, you'll find a place. Did you eat yesterday? Yeah. Did you eat the day before that? Uh-huh. Have you eaten every day since you've been on this planet? Yeah, pretty much. Okay, you're going to find something after church. It's going to be okay. <laughs> Life is more than food. The body is more than clothing. And we obviously know that the right answer to this, this question, is the body more than clothing? We obviously know the right answer is yes. But just take a look at our culture. Take a look at what's being pushed at us and sold to us, that if you look like this and you dress like that, then your life would be all right. And nobody comes right out and says that. They, because they know that that's not the right thing to say, but that's what they're selling. I said, that's what they're selling. That's what they're selling to our young people. That's what they're selling to us, all of us. But your life is more than your clothing. Your life is more than what you eat. Jesus said, look at the birds of the air, verse 26, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Here's another question. Are you not of more value than they? Jesus is asking you a question here. Are you not of more value than they? Now he goes on in this and says in verse 30, verse 29, I, or just back up, verse 28, um, why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Now this is what we talked about last night. I want to remind you what we said. Grace is working while we rest. Notice these flowers. Jesus said, look at the flowers, so look at the flowers. They grow, right? But it's not by their effort. It's not by toiling. It's not by laboring. It's not by spinning. He said, our Father clothes them. And we spent time looking last night at grace that's laboring and wants to do the toiling for us. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4, there's a verse that just says this so beautifully. It says, no eye has seen and no ear has heard a God like you that works for those who wait for him. Have you ever heard that before? No eye has seen, no ear has ever heard of a God like you. God, there is no God like you. And what makes our God our God? He is a God that works for those who wait for him. Now, you got to remind yourself, I'm reading scripture here. And I'm going to say something to you that religion doesn't like to hear it, but I'm going to say it because it's in the Bible. God works for you. Now, I don't mean he's employed by you, <laughs> but by his own desire and by his own will, and out of his own love and compassion, he works for you. And no eye has ever seen, no ear has ever heard of a God that will go to work for his creation. 
Every other religion demands you to work for your God. But this verse right here says, God, God will go to work on your behalf. Grace will work. He works for those who wait on him. Isn't that a picture of rest? What are you doing? I'm waiting. I'm resting. I'm letting grace labor. That's where your growth is going to come from, by allowing grace to do the toiling. And when somebody looks at you in your job, in your ministry, in your assignment, whatever it is, and they're saying, man, you are working hard. You are really putting in some hours. You need to be able to look back and say, you know what? You know what? I am laboring, yet not I. It's the grace that's laboring in me. That's how you can work hard and be at rest at the same time. Many people are just working hard, and at the end of the day, they're worn out, they're wearied because they've labored. But Sarah and I, praise God, our testimony is this. We have been all over the world this year. The Lord told us to make this a strong international year. We've been to South America twice, been to India, spent almost the whole month of October in, in Africa, and now we're in Canada. And between all those international trips, we've done meetings across the United States. Somebody looks at us and says, man, you, got, you guys are working hard. You know what I would say? We are, but we aren't. It's not us. It's the grace in us that's doing this. We have a God that wants to work on our behalf. Let's, let's answer this question today as we begin to wrap all this up. In verse 26, look at it again. Jesus said, look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then he said, are you not of more value than they? What's the question here? Do you know what you're worth? Now, your heavenly Father feeds the birds, you can see that, and they're not working for their food. They're not working to put food on the table. Your heavenly Father has fed them. And a lot of people look at it and say, well, you know, nature takes care of itself. Who is nature? Nature is not my mother. Nature is not your mama. We have a Father God who takes care of his creation. Say amen. amen. But the question here that Jesus poses is, do you know how much you are worth? Listen to it out of the uh, Amplified Bible. Matthew 6, 26, listen to this. Look at the birds of the air, Jesus said. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father keeps feeding them. He says, are you not worth much more than they? Do you know what you're worth? Do you know what your value is? Listen to it out of uh, the New Living Translation. Jesus said, look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? I love this. Jesus is asking us a question, but he's endeavoring to get us to wake up like some of us need to do this morning. Wake up! Wake up to how valuable you are to the Heavenly Father. Asking you a question. If He feeds them, and you're more valuable than they are, will He feed you? Will He? If He clothes them, and you are far more valuable, worth far more to him than they are, 
Will he clothe you? We said this a couple of nights ago. The presence of worry is the absence of faith. What if I told you that I was going to do something for you? You had something coming up and there was just one too many things on your to-do list and there was not going to be any way you could get it all done in the day. And I said, you know what? Let me help you. I will do this for you. I will go there. I will get it. When, when you need to get that, need me to get that tomorrow, I will do that for you tomorrow. I give you my word. I will do it. Now, what does it say about how you think about me if you go ahead and stay awake all night worried about whether or not I'm going to go do what I told you I was going to do? What's that say about me? What does that say about what you think about me? If you stay up all night, even though I told you I'm going to do it for you, but you go ahead and stay up all night going, Ian, I hope he does it. I hope Jeremy goes and takes care of that for me. And you call me every 10 minutes all through the night. <laughs> Hello? Now, now, I just want to make sure you're going to go take care of that for me. You are going to go pick that up for me tomorrow, right? Yeah, I told you I was going to do it. Okay, okay. Hang up. And you stay awake and you're pacing the floor. Oh, I hope he goes. I hope he goes. What if he doesn't go? Oh, he said he would, but I hope he does. What if he doesn't? And you call me again. And you call me again. And you call me again. Folks, around 3.30 in the morning, this is going to get real annoying to me. Right? This is going to become very annoying. But the evidence here is you have no faith in what I've told you that I would do. And it wouldn't matter if I had come through for you over and over and over and over. If you still choose to stay awake and worry and call me and call me and call me and wonder if I'm going to do what I said I was going to do, that proves you have no faith in me or in my word. And wouldn't the same thing be true with God? One who has said, I will take the care of this for you. I will see to it that every need you have is met. Haven't I clothed you in the past? Haven't I fed you in the past? Isn't your life one ongoing testimony of my goodness, my faithfulness, and my mercy towards you? And what does it say about how you think of him for you to stay up all night worried about whether or not he's going to come through? The presence of that worry is the absence of faith. And the big problem is you don't know what you're worth. The big problem is you have no idea how valuable you are to God. Luke chapter 12. Look at what Jesus said about it. This is, the, this is really the same conversation. But Luke's account adds something here. In verse 4, he said, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no, uh, have no more that they can do. Uh, look down at verse, verse 6. I want to show you this. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Jesus is saying, you can get five birds for two pieces of copper. In other words, they ain't expensive. <laughs> birds is cheap. You can get five birds for two coins. Somebody say, birds is cheap. But verse 7 he said, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. 
Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. You are of more value than many sparrows. It's not like one-to-one here. You understand that, right? You are so valuable to God that the very hairs of your head are numbered. Raise your hand if you know how many hairs you have on your head right now. Ricardo, don't raise your hand. (laughs) That's no fair. That's cheating. That's cheating. Do you know how many hairs are on your head? Think of somebody you love, the person you love the very most in this life. How many hairs are on their head? Here's my wife sitting right here. I love her with everything I've got. Let me tell you something. I don't even have a clue how many hairs be up there. I don't know. I, don't, I couldn't even begin to tell you. And she doesn't know how many hairs I have on my head. She's counted the gray ones, but not all of them. Not all the hair. This is how much your daddy loves you. He has numbered the hairs on your head. Our father is paying great attention to the little details of your life. Our father pays great attention to the little details of your life. You know what this says to me? He knows more about you than you know about you. Because this is how much he loves you. And he's comparing you to these birds and he says, are you not of more value than they? Here's a big revelation to some people. People are more valuable than animals. People are more precious and more valuable. The life of a person is worth more than the life of an animal. Some of you with dogs are just getting mad at me right now, but I'm I'm being serious about this. And there are places that you can go where the life of an animal is comparable, if not worth more, than the life of a person. In America, we have been to places, I won't name them, but we have been to places. We literally preached in a place, that, and they told us, do not be surprised if there is a dog on the front row. And there was, that day, a dog on the front row of that church. Why? Because in this particular town, you don't dare tell somebody they can't bring their dog in here. Because the animal rights activists in this town have a loud voice. And they told us, they said, literally, the the unwritten rule in this town is if you lose control of your car and you're about to hit either a person or a dog, hit the person. (laughs) It'll cause you less damage. It'll cost you less. Um, You know, just a personal opinion. That's messed up. That is messed up. Somebody say amen if you believe that. Now, I'm not saying they're not worth nothing. I, you know, I like dogs. You like, there's a dog in here this morning. We already saw him. Bruno, where you at? Raise your hand, Bruno. I see that, Paul. But you need to understand that you and I are created in the image of God. And they're not. We are, and they're not. You are far more valuable than any other created thing on this planet. And the book of Romans talks about the dangers that, that lie ahead for those who begin to worship the creation rather than the creator. You and I are far more valuable 
than any other created thing on this planet. They were created for us. They were created because he loves us so much. Somebody say, I'm worth more. You need to know that. Now, now go to, uh, back to the book of Matthew, but let's look in chapter 13. I want to spend just a few minutes this morning telling you how much you are worth. And just so you know, it has nothing to do with what's in the bank. It also has nothing to do with what's not in the bank. That's not your worth. That's not your value. And to echo what Jesus has already said, it has nothing to do with the clothes you put on. Your worth is not measured in the company you keep. Your worth is not measured in what other man or woman knows you. Your worth is measured in who you know, if you know Jesus. Listen to this out of the book of Matthew chapter 13. Jesus is speaking, and in verse 44, Jesus said, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You ever heard this reference before? Anybody ever heard Jesus talk about this before? Let's really get an understanding of what Jesus said here. He said, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Imagine with me, if you will, there's a man working in a field. And as he's working in that field, digging a hole, so he's probably not a wealthy man. His job is to dig a hole. He discovers buried treasure. Now, I looked into this one time, and this really wasn't that uncommon. Because as wars and things like that would move, battles would move in these regions, there would be times where people would just take everything they had and bury it in hopes that they've got to come back there that later in life, and hopefully what they buried would still be there. So what Jesus is saying here is there's a guy working in a field, and he uncovers buried treasure. And the rule was buried treasure, fallen treasure was the same as fallen fruit. In other words, if the fruit's on the tree and you don't own the tree, that's not your fruit. But if the fruit had fallen and it was on the ground, it could be right under that tree. As long as it was not on the tree, you could eat it. The same thing applied to the treasure. If you found something, it's finders keepers. That's where we get that, I guess. And this guy found buried treasure. And I want you to notice what he did. For joy over it, Jesus said. This guy was ballistic over what he found. For joy over this buried treasure, what did he do? He went and sold, watch this, all that he had. Imagine this guy, ladies, imagine you're married to this guy and he comes home from work early one day, all panicked, just running around the house. He says, baby, baby, I don't have time to explain it, but listen, I need you to do something for me. Just get everything together. Get everything you can find. We are selling everything. Everything's got to go. We're selling dishes. We're selling furniture. We're selling one of the kids. We're selling. Is your mom still here? She's got to go right now because we are selling everything. I don't care. Whatever you can get your hands on, we are selling it all. Let's go. Let's go. And if that's you, ladies, imagine some of you are kind of getting panicked here for a moment and you stop him just long enough to say, what are you talking about? And he looks back at you, takes a deep breath and he says, I can't get into it right now, 
but I'm buying a field. I'm buying a field. Your husband is selling everything you've got, everything that you've spent your marriage collecting and buying and building and shaping and, and, and nesting in this little home. He's selling everything you've got for a field. For a field. Is that not crazy up in Canada? Because if a guy came home in America and did that, he's going to have to find a new wife soon because that's crazy. You're going to buy a field? Now, let's think about this for a moment. For something to be worth selling everything you've got, that one thing has to have the ability to replace everything you've got. Right? What if you wanted to buy some beautiful car, some really expensive, fine Italian sports car? It cost hundreds of thousands. And you didn't have that much cash, so you just got a hold of everything you could. House, car you had, clothes on your back, every single thing you could find, and you liquidated everything and you somehow came up with enough cash to buy that car. Somebody tell me, can that car, it might be worth numerically what you had, but can a car replace everything you've got? No. You better just plan to live in that car. You naked now, you can't get out of the car. And now you got you and the kids in there and this car is so nice, you're not going to let anybody eat in the car. Am I right? Gentlemen, say amen. amen. No eating. What am I saying? For something, for one thing to be able to replace or to be worth everything you've got, it has to be able to replace and then some everything you've got. Notice what Jesus said. This guy found the treasure. For joy over it, he hid it again. And then he went and sold everything he had and bought the field that the treasure was hidden in. Here's what's interesting. He takes his wife and her mother out to see this field that he's buying. And by this time, neighbors have gotten word that the crazy guy next door has confirmed all their suspicions and he is indeed <laughs> clinically insane. And everybody starts to come out to look at this field that he's buying with everything that he's got. And they step up to the edge of that field and what do they see? Dirt, maybe some grass, rocks, might be a tree out in the corner somewhere. And people are going, are you out of your mind? You sold everything for this? But all they see is what's on the surface, right? When that guy stands there and looks at that field, do you, what do you think he's looking at? He's looking at the treasure buried beneath the surface. That's the value of the field. What's hidden beneath the surface is the value of the field. And this guy's about to be able to replace everything he's got, everything he's ever had, and everything he's ever wanted with the contents of this field. Jesus goes on as if that wasn't enough. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven, verse 45, is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls 
who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This guy did the same crazy thing that the first guy did. He's a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, but he didn't just buy a bunch of pearls. He bought one. He bought one pearl. He sold everything he had to buy one pearl. Somebody say, crazy? This guy is crazy. How can one pearl replace everything you've got? And I studied this and I found out that at this particular time in history, the pearl was considered to be one of, if not the most beautiful thing that a human could hold in their hand. This guy found value in its beauty. The first guy found value in the field, not because of the field, but because of what was hidden in it. This guy has found value because of the beauty. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells another story. Talks about a woman who has 10 silver coins and she loses one of them. And you know what she did when she lost one of them? She tore that house apart. Ladies, you ever lost your wedding ring? That's what this, that's what this was to this woman. These people in this region at this time, these young girls would save their whole lives, their whole childhood for the time when they got married and they would make a headdress out of these 10 silver coins that they have saved up. And this headdress with these coins, that's her wedding ring. It's the exact same thing as her wedding ring. And you think, okay, you lost one. You've got nine more. But the value of it had nothing to do with what it was worth numerically because it's not worth much, 10 silver coins, not worth much. The value of it was the connection to her heart. The value of it was in how she saw it. You understand that? And the Bible says, Jesus said, she tore that house apart, turned over every piece of furniture, dug around in every corner until she found it. And when she found it, you know what she did? She went and got all her neighbors, all the ladies in the houses around her, and she said, rejoice with me. That which was lost has been found. And that, doesn't that just sound like a woman who has lost what was so precious to her and then found it? I found it, I found it, I found it. Getting everybody to rejoice with her, even when nobody else cares. I understand the pain of losing your wedding ring, but I'm sorry, I didn't buy your ring. I bought that one. I hope you find it. But if this one were lost, <laughs> you better believe all things stop until it's found. Why? Because it means something to us. It may not mean anything to you. You might have a sympathetic feeling, but it doesn't mean to you what it means to us. And yours doesn't mean to us what it means to you. It's connected to your heart. In the same way that that field did not mean the same thing to all the neighbors that it meant to the guy that bought it. And as soon as that guy sold everything he had, that field now becomes worth everything he has. At least. Regardless of what anybody else says it's worth, you paid how much for what? You paid how much 
For what? You bought one pearl? You bought a field? You freaked out over one coin? Yeah, yeah, I did. I paid everything I had for this field. I paid everything I had for this pearl. Here's the deal. The price paid is what determines the value. Are you with me? So you find something, right, that reminds you of something that was in your home growing up as a child. And you come across it in some sale somewhere. And it's either the very same one or looks just like it. And it it just reminds you of childhood. It reminds you of your home. And you just think, I have to have that. And you pay whatever the guy asks for it. Hundreds, maybe. And you think, it's worth it to me. I have to have that. so precious to me. It's connected to your heart. It's valuable to you. And you pay that. Whatever that object is, is now worth at least what you paid for it. Why? Because you paid for it. You got to determine what it was worth when you paid for it. Now you put that thing up in your home and somebody comes in and says, oh, what, what in the world is that? And you tell them the whole story and you tell them where you found it. You tell them how much you paid for it and they look at you and they say, you paid how much for that? Are you kidding? Are you out of your mind? That's not worth that. But listen, they don't get to determine what it's worth. You do. Why? You paid for it. Are you with me? Can I tell you what 1 Corinthians 6, 20 says? It says you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. What does that mean? It means you are not the one that determines your value. The one that bought you determines your value. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. It is quiet in church this morning. Somebody must have had a wild Saturday night. Just kidding. We had a wild one, didn't we? In church. All right, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. If you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You were purchased. You and I were bought with a price. And it was not silver. It was not gold. The price that was paid for us was the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what that means? That means that's how much you're worth. That's the value that's been placed on you. Don't you ever, ever again in your life come into some church service or kneel beside your bed and pray and start telling God how unworthy you are. 
unworthy means not worth it. And you're not the one that gets to decide what you're worth. You didn't buy you. He bought you. He gets to decide what you are worth. You want to know who that crazy guy out in that field was? That was your father. You want to know who that crazy merchant was? That was your father. And he looked at you and not looking at the surface, not looking at the grass, dirt, rocks, not looking at the mistakes, not looking at the shortcomings, looking at the treasure beneath the surface. And he said, I see value. I see worth. And this is what I'm willing to pay. Mm. He stepped up to the counter, so to speak. And he said, I'm willing to pay this for that one. And it wasn't silver. It wasn't gold. It was the blood of Jesus. And the moment he paid that much for you, that moment is when you became worth that much. He put that value on you. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Your father saw value in you. Why would he pay this much for me? Because when he looks at you, he says, you are to me the most beautiful thing I could hold in my hand. And you're worth it to me. Don't argue with him over what you're worth. Don't argue with him over how valuable you are. You believe it and you receive it by faith. And by faith in Jesus, I am valuable to my father. And if I am this valuable to him, there is no sense in me worrying about what I'll eat. There's no sense in me worrying about what I'll wear. There's no sense in me worrying about the healing of my body. There's no sense in me worrying about paying my bills. There's no sense about no sense in me worrying about paying this debt. I am so valuable in the eyes of my father and he pays great attention to every detail of my life. I cast this care onto the one who bought me, onto the one who paid for me, onto the one who owns me. He cares for me. He cares for me. In Exodus chapter 30, and I'll begin to wrap it up with this, most likely. Exodus chapter 30, verse 11 Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. When you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. Every man had to bring payment. This is Old Testament. You understand that, right? Old Testament. And God said, if every man will bring this payment There will be no plague, no sickness, no disease. Why? Because of the payment. Verse 13, this is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 garas. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone including 
Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. Notice this, verse 15. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. What's that mean? Same price for everybody. Same price for every man. And it had nothing to do with how much money they had or how much money they didn't have. In the eyes of God, it was the same price for every man. The rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. When you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Does anybody else besides me see what a crystal clear picture of Jesus this is? Our ransom, our redeemer. And now when we come to the temple, we don't bring payment for our ransom. Why? Because payment's been made. Payment's been made. And the rich, the same payment that was made for the rich man was made for the poor man. Jesus is the great equalizer. And our worth is no longer dependent on what's in the bank or what's not in the bank. Our worth, Jesus is the measure of our worth. However much you have, however much you don't have. Listen to me. Quit playing this comparison game with other people and the stuff they got. Don't compare yourself to somebody else. That's not your worth. People want to know, well, what's your net worth? When you try to get a loan, when you try to get into a home, when you try to get some credit, what's your net worth? What's your value? If we were to add up all your assets, what would you be worth? But can you see what a natural carnal way that is of thinking? And I understand it's difficult to fill out a home loan and say that my, I'm worth the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I know they don't understand that. But do you understand that? Do you understand your value? Because if you did, you'd be anxious for nothing. If you had any idea what you were worth in the eyes of God, you would be anxious for nothing.